Incorporating AI into your business can be a delicate balance between speed and intelligence. That's why you might want to consider the Claude 3 family models from Anthropic for your enterprise AI. Haiku is their light and fast model, Opus is their most powerful model capable of high order thinking, and Sonnet is the best combination of both speed and intelligence. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. It's on! From New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is AI Kara Swisher. Or is it the real Kara Swisher? Or is it AI Kara Swisher? Soon, you'll never know. That is actually Kara Swisher, and I'm Naima Raza, and there is so much AI around us. Yes. When's the last time you saw a tech revolution like this? Was it Web3, social media? Mobile. The shift to mobile. You understood that it was going to unleash an enormous amount of companies. Uber didn't exist. There's all kinds of companies that the, the iPhone introduction really did shift the whole app revolution, yeah. certainly the mobile era. And this is the same thing. You don't really understand what's going to be made because nobody's creative enough to think about the various applications. But there'll be a Yahoo of this, a Google of this. There'll be an Uber of this. There'll be a, you know, whatever. You name your app. Yes. Our guest today is one of these AI company founders. Mm-hmm. So we have a number of companies operating in the space, OpenAI, Anthropic, DeepMind, Google. Today's guest, Mustafa Suleiman, actually founded DeepMind, which sold to Google. A story I believe you broke, I did. Mm -hmm. That was a long time ago, 2014 or something like Mm -hmm. that. And since then, he's left Google. He worked on Lambda, Google's large language learning model, and has moved on to start the company Inflection AI along with Reid Hoffman, who we've had on the podcast Mm -hmm. as well. So do you know Mustafa Suleiman? Have you met him? I have met him many times when he was at Google and working on this stuff. I was very uh, taken by what they were doing in AI, more so than anything else. And I I remember when they bought it, I thought, this is probably a bigger deal than I realized. Mm -hmm. I I wasn't as up to speed, and most people thought AI was going to come very slowly. Mm -hmm. Um, But when Google bought it, I started to pay a lot of attention to the sector. And he's a really interesting person in Silicon Valley because Mm -hmm. he doesn't have the same background as many of the CEOs that we've seen. He grew up in the UK. He was raised by a Syrian-born father Mm -hmm. who drove a cab and Mm -hmm. a British mother and then dropped out of Oxford, I believe. DeepMind was in England, which is another unusual thing I remember at the time. I said, interesting, because it was way ahead of everybody else. You know, it was a really big deal. When they bought YouTube, it was a similar feeling. Mm. This is a big deal. They had to have it. So have you been surprised that DeepMind has been kind of kept under the cloth a little bit? They have. Google's got to be very careful. They've been doing a lot of AI stuff, Mm -hmm. but they've been very slow to roll things out, largely because they're worried about the safety and everything Mm -hmm. else. And so I think they now realize they've really got to lean into this area. But, you know, I never count Google out on things like this. 
You think they were holding back because they're a publicly traded company as yeah. well, right? The mm-hmm. safety would have real. Yeah, and then they did all their silly stuff, their silliness, their silly walks everywhere. <laughs> what do you mean silly walks? You know, all those companies they started, all those. Oh alpha- yeah, all the Alphabet kind yeah. of portfolio companies yeah, that the they are now closing down. Bay. They should have focused on AI. They never innovated search. That was always interesting to me. And if you think about it, AI, the way it's being delivered right now is innovative search and ads. Yeah, at, like really actually serving up ads yeah. based on your search mm-hmm. results, right? Yeah. But these days, Mustafa Salman's on to a new company, this Inflection AI with Reid Hoffman. Their goal is to create a personal AI. Yeah. And they released a chatbot called Pi, which is, they want it to be warm and fuzzy, and it mm-hmm. is like that if yeah. you hang out with it. And it reminded me of, do you remember Clara AI? No. So I remember when I was meeting with people from Stripe, like Claire Hughes-Johnson, et cetera, they had an assistant named Clara. Mm-hmm. And so Clara was always helping There's me schedule a, things. Yeah. And this is probably 2014, and I show up one day, and I had brought macaroons and a card or something because mm-hmm. she had helped you know, so much. And I'm like, can I meet Clara? Because I just want to give her something. And they're like, oh, no, no. Yeah. Clara's not real. No. Clara's <laughs> an AI. Yeah. I mean, people in Silicon Valley have been working on this for a yes. very long time. And it's a big sci-fi thing is that mm-hmm. there are robots who respond to us or anthropomorphic creatures that are not real, that they're digital. You know, whether you watch uh, Iron Man, where he has Jarvis, or any number of, even going back to Lost in Space or mm-hmm. Star Trek's computer, tell me this. Well, duh. you know, yeah. that's been a dream of technology and it hasn't been met. But I do think you will have a personal AI in the next 10 years and it will talk to other people's personal AIs. Yes. Have you ever had, per- you don't like having assistant? I did many years ago, but no, I'm not good with the assistant. I like doing my own stuff. You know, in I, Holland- might have a per- I might have an AI assistant. Yeah. I just think it, they'll be more efficient. And I, if so, if I'm wandering around my house, I'm like, I need laundry detergent. Instead of stopping myself ordering it, the AI would know that. Kara, do you want me to order that? Yeah, okay, please do that. I can see doing that. I don't want a person following me around. I love it. That's what you want. Or something. Detergent. No, whatever I want. I want to yes. get a, a, hey, get me some flights to LA. Hey, yeah. uh, we're thinking about going to here. What would you give me some information about it? You know, and not yeah. print it out or searched on, yes. just that it starts to. Well, based on what you've gone to, you might like this. A lot of people, and I did this when I first got to L.A. and was trying Mm -hmm. to make movies and stuff, a lot of people come up with their own fake assistants, and then you create your own email address. So I had OliviaGrayLA at gmail.com. Okay. She was so good. I mean, it was me. I was just writing to people. You sound like Donald Trump. This is the PR guy with John, whatever his Oh, my God. So many writer friends of mine have done this. They get to L.A. and you have one. And the strength of the AI is knowing you and That also creates a fear with this kind of personalized AI because Mm -hmm. the deeper, the closer they are to your juggler veins, the Mm -hmm. more data, the more security, the more access and proximity I'm giving you, which, one, I'm paying you probably to use your product, but I myself am giving you data, which is valuable. Mm -hmm. And two, in a world where we're already kind of disintermediated from other humans by devices, Mm -hmm. and the Surgeon General, Murthy, is saying that we have a loneliness epidemic, this is pushing us further into... Technology. Well, we're already there. You're like talking. We're already there. You're already on the matrix. I'm sorry to give you that information. You're yeah. already being tracked. And it's very depersonalized. So I think this is kind of interesting. I think it's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's got a competitive edge that is interesting. I wouldn't mind a little more personalization and empathy from computers. Do you think they're a bit like Neva, like you're paying for extra privacy in some way? Yeah, you will. They won't yeah. sell your information. And some people, if they don't want to pay, you'll agree to give some information. I think, I think Congress has got to be here regulating all this stuff. Yeah. What do you think is happening? Uh, to- I think they're going to do nothing. Even these calls from the U.N. Secretary General, I mean, I know, U.N. Yeah. Secretary General calls. They make a lot of calls. Mean a lot. <laughs> yeah. They like to make calls, but they, they don't want like to actually do anything. They want some kind of international watchdog agency. But there are a lot of people showing up in Washington to have conversations with regulators. 
Yes. Sam Altman they apparently are. is They're with- trying to fr- front mm-hmm. load this thing, and they should. They're being much more responsible than everyone's like they're virtue signaling. I've never saw any of the tech companies do this. And so I'm happy that they're doing it. They you know didn't- who showed up a lot in D.C.? Who? In the crypto world? Well, yeah, Sam yes. Bankman-Fried. Yeah, yeah. I get it. Uh, but these people not are not saying Sam, Sam Bankman-Fried. Altman is Sam Bankman-Fried at all. I'm not saying I, that, but I'm just saying. I never had a trust of crypto, but this I, I do believe. But sometimes showing up can be correlated with having an agenda. Maybe. And sometimes showing up can be I don't know. Correlated with altruism, it's hard to know. Yeah, I don't mind that they have self-interest. I just want to know that our legislators are participating in the development of it. Hundred percent. I think that's a good thing to know, especially because what's scary is this technology either being not good enough or too good. That's the interesting it's thing be about too AI. Good. Because yeah, when it's not good enough, it's giving you misinformation. We saw that. It's going to be great. I'm sorry to tell you, it's going to be great. Why are you sorry to tell me? I'm excited. Good. To... Okay. Because a lot of people are scared of it, but it doesn't matter. The other day, someone was worried about AI to me, and they're like, oh, I'm really worried. And I literally said to them, are you still churning your butter? How's that working out for you? You don't. You, you said that you, to me about autonomous vehicles. I, oh, are you telling uh, me a story about it? Oh, it was about you. <laughs> yes. I was like, I can't remember who I told you. But this is the way it's going. It doesn't really matter what you think. This is how it's going to well, be. Well, I think on AI, I agree with you. On autonomous vehicles, I think it's probably going to get there. But not liking something and it it being inevitable are two different things. I do think AI is coming and we will be back with our guests. If you don't like it, don't do it. That's my feeling. But you got to do it. Yeah, you're going to do it. You're going to do it. And you forgot whenever you didn't want to do it. You'll forget. Anyways, let's take a quick break and we'll be back with our guest, Mustafa Suleiman. Support for this episode comes from SAS. How is AI affecting how you learn, work, and socialize? And what do you need to know to make responsible use of it as a business leader, worker, and human in the world? Find out when you listen to Pondering AI, a podcast featuring candid conversations with experts from across the AI ecosystem. Pondering AI explores the impact and implications of AI for better and for worse with a diverse group of innovators, advocates, and data scientists. Check out Pondering AI wherever you get your podcasts. Support for On with Kara Swisher comes from Delete Me. Unfortunately, there's a very good chance that some of your private information is available on the internet for anyone to see. In fact, I'm sure of it. And even worse, to sell it. Your name, number, home address, and other private information might be floating on the internet without your knowledge. Delete Me is a subscription service that wipes your personal information from hundreds of people search databases on the web. Delete Me finds and removes personal information sold by data brokers that you don't want online and makes sure it stays off. You can tell Delete Me exactly what information you want deleted and their experts take it from there. They will send you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. I really have enjoyed Delete Me. It's been pretty shocking and I'm pretty good around uh, issues of my information online, but there was so much information all over the place. It was very easy to navigate. You can see right there on the Delete Me um, report that you get what is out there and what you need to do and pick and choose what you think is important to eliminate. You can take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for our listeners. You can get 20% off your Delete Me plan today when you go to joindeleteme.com slash Kara and use the promo code Kara at checkout. Again, you can get 20% off by going to joindeleteme.com slash Kara and enter the code Kara at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash Kara, code Kara. Mustafa, thanks for joining me. 
I think we should start off with some recent AI news, and we're going to dive into Inflection AI and your new chatbot, Pi, and we'll end up with some broader questions about content moderation, regulation, and ethics. Sure. Yep. A couple of weeks ago, you and a long list of AI luminaries signed a tw- just a 22-word statement that says mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be the global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. But if it presents an extinction risk, why are you commercializing? And I want you to explain it to people, why you released the statement and why you think this. Well, I think the first thing to say is that we've been trying to put these issues on the public agenda for the best part of a decade. I mean, when we co-founded DeepMind, our mission was to build safe and ethical AGI. So right from the outset and throughout the course of the last decade, we've been trying to figure out governance structures, business models, technical safety mechanisms, industry collaborations, encouraging um, public criticism and open discussion about this. So to me, that statement is in a kind of long line of various efforts that have been going on by me and many other people to try to say, in the theoretical limit, there is a potential that these systems could become recursively self-improving. That Mm -hmm. is that they make themselves better. They improve over time in ways that might potentially be out of our control. Right. And that theoretical possibility is something that I think people have fixated on a little bit um, in the grand... Sure. I mean, sci-fi has that happening pretty much in every movie. Right. And so it's easy to kind of grasp onto that image of the Terminator getting out of control. And as far as I'm concerned, that's no bad thing. I've always been a believer in the precautionary principle. And I think that we're approaching uh, a moment sometime in the next few years where it's right to slow down and think about the potential negative consequences, setting aside the potential benefits. That's the trade-off we're going to have to make. We're going to have to say it's pretty clear that advancing the deployment of these models could potentially save, you know, real lives. I mean, just look at the trade-off that was made uh, with self-driving cars or autopilot in Tesla. I think there's almost 17 casualties now that have been associated with autopilot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's possible maybe to quantify the benefit of making progress towards self-driving, but it's not crystal clear, has to be said, right? Right, right. But in this case, extinct, I don't think we're going to feel extinction level from Tesla, right? That's a word. Totally. Right? (laughs) I feel like maybe we'll get bopped by one of Elon's cars. But in this case, use the word extinction. So explain why you all decided to put this out. Well, because I think that, like I say, in the most extreme cases, if we really are successful in creating an intelligence that is capable of performing all the tasks that humans perform better than humans, then it's quite likely that it would quickly get better than us at every conceivable future task. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge then becomes, how do you contain the power and ability to act of a system like this, such that it is always under meaningful human control and always operates, you know, within the kind of boundaries of how we collectively as a species would like it to, that's a very tall order, right? And then doing that in a provably safe way is even harder. Right, right. By the way, I do think that this is quite a long way out. Some people have speculated that this is something that we have to worry about within the next few years. And I think that's alarmist, exaggerated, and plain wrong. 
I think that we're talking about more like a multi-decade timescale here. I see no evidence that we're on the cusp of losing control of recursively self-improving autonomous agents that will wander around the internet and secure their own resources and act against us. And I don't think that we're on a trajectory to do that within the next few years. Although um, many people the- didn't didn't think generative AI would move so quickly, right? Most people were surprised. Well, but- I think that's a cheap soundbite that a lot of people have said because they're super excited. I actually think that this has been a trajectory that we've been battling on for 15 years. Neural networks are 40 years old in theory. Um, when you actually look back at the progress on the underlying algorithms, it's actually been incremental. It's really the compute and the data that has grown exponentially. Mm-hmm. So that's that's good. Meaning what we could put into it and the power of the computing. Right. The amount of compute that has been used to train these models has grown by nine orders of magnitude in the last decade. So generative AI didn't just come out of nowhere. We've seen this progressive and actually quite predictable improvement in capabilities as we add more compute. So that's why I think we and you know others have been sounding the alarm at this point, because we're right. like, okay, the difference between GPT-2, which used two orders of magnitude mm-hmm. of compute less than GPT-4, is staggering. Mm-hmm. The last two orders of magnitude is absolutely eye-wateringly impressive, the difference between the two models. Right. So what's the next two orders going to look like? I don't think it's going to be some intelligence explosion where suddenly the AI is trying to get out the box and manipulate us and, and commandeer physical infrastructure and all no, these other kinds of things. No, that's just real people. That's just real people who do that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, We've got people to do that. <laughs> oh, I, I, would, I would trust computers more than people, I'll be honest with you. But not long after you signed the statement, Mark Andreessen, who loves to do this, published a long blog post titled, Why AI Will Save the World. He calls people who say... AI poses an existential risk. Baptists. Then he references Oppenheimer, who invented the nuclear bomb, and an argument over his feelings of guilt. He says, some people confess guilt to claim credit for sin. What is the most dramatic way one can claim credit for the importance of one's work without sounding overtly boastful? This explains the mismatch between the words and the actions of the Baptists, who are actually building and funding AI, watch their actions, not their words. What's your response? He's essentially saying you're Baptist. I'm not sure I quite follow it, given that he's investing in all of the companies that are making this happen. So I'm not quite sure what he is in this little scenario, nor am I sure what what I am. He's the best man ever, just so you know. (laughs) So anyway. (laughs) He might be the ultimate VC troll. Yes, he really is. He's not saying it's an existential risk. Um, And I agree, he's not an objective source. Let's say that in a nice way. But I like VC troll quite a bit. But when he says this, what do you say to it? Look, the confusing thing is that there are going to be many seemingly contradictory statements which are all broadly correct. Mm -hmm. And instead of acknowledging the weaknesses of our own statements and the strengths of our enemy's statements, you know, he and others like to frame it as some black and white adversarial, they're wrong, I'm right kind of exchange. If you actually think about what he's saying, it's very reasonable. AI has every chance of saving the world. That's why we're building it, because we're naive and utopian and passionate in believing that it can do a huge amount of good, right? That That's not necessarily contradictory with us claiming that there is a long-term potential and theoretical risk that we have to attend to, just like with the arrival of any new technology. And what's good about, I think, this new wave of, of AI is that Everybody is wised up to, you know, the potential threats compared to where we were with social media. I think a slightly younger and more aware crop of leaders of tech, AI leaders, are proactively calling for 
slowing down, calling for the use of the precautionary principle, you know, raising the alarm about potential harms in a way that I think the last generation of tech leaders didn't do. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they're contradictory statements at all. I, I think that's actually... So one of the things, though, is that you benefit from raising the alarm because you say, look, I warned you. It does create a perception of responsibility, not with accountability yet. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen. So I'd love to know what is the broad outlines of the sort of regulation you'd like to see? So to begin with, I think we have to draw some guardrails about who can speak publicly. Mm-hmm. I think that it shouldn't be okay for an AI system to imitate a human being publicly mm-hmm. without that being explicit. Explicit, right. So that's just an easy thing for us to take off the table. Mm-hmm. Second thing is that we have to have some watermark for content that allows the producer of that content to tie it back to them, right? So we don't have this imitation issue, right? And I think you, that can be cryptographically signed. And so that deals with some Provenance. Provenance. Yeah, exactly. And that deals with some of the issues. It doesn't deal with all of them. And I think that's that's table stakes. The next thing that needs to be possible is that there has to be independent third-party adversarial red teamers who can attack a model and constantly try to break it, right? We do that internally, but we shouldn't be marking our own homework. We welcome other people, and ideally they should be qualified and well-paid and you know, funded by independent third-party groups that aren't attached to us, who can try and do their very best to induce the model to say biased, toxic, racist, harmful content, right? I think so that's- So availability of third parties to do this, which, which social media sites have been very sketchy about. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Yeah, exactly. And I th- I think that's one of the failings of the social media age is that they haven't allowed transparency of how their platforms are being used. Mm-hmm. It should be possible to share with responsible, trusted third party academics, researchers and government regulators, you know, why a particular piece of content has been shown to a certain person. What is it about the profile that has been created about them, which has led the social media company to personalize content in this way? And we should be able to do research on that. It doesn't mean that it's going to expose sensitive company IP. It doesn't mean that, you know, suddenly we're going to leak personally identifiable information from the user. There are certainly ways of doing all of that in a privacy-preserving, safe and responsible way. Well, none of that has happened, though, at all. There's no privacy legislation. You would welcome that kind of thing, regulated transparency. Absolutely. Transparency is the path to trust. But the same companies that did this before are doing it now. Do you see them changing that attitude? Well, that's sort of true. It is and it isn't. I mean, you know, I think that, you know, Inflection, Anthropic, DeepMind, OpenAI, we're a group of, you know, friends and and colleagues that have been working together for the best part of 10, 15 years. And I think we have slightly different, you know, a different flavor. I mean, we're still fundamentally working in big tech. I'm not, mm-hmm. you know, going to sort of, you know, that that's that's important to say. But, you know, I think there's a different flavor to the kind of approach that we're trying to take now. And it represents the next um, step forward in the evolution of of companies and how we run big tech. Speaking of big tech, Jeffrey Hinton, who was one of the early researchers and creators of AI, recently quit his job at Google. He said he's very concerned about disinformation, deep fakes, job losses, AI warfare. I think killer robots was his concern, et cetera. And you worked with him at Google. Did that surprise you? Um, look, I think Jeff has been fairly distant from all of these debates throughout 
you know, all my time at Google, and in fact, most of the time in the industry, I can't think of the last time when he spoke up on anything about this. Mm-hmm. So he certainly has had some kind of road to Damascus experience because this is not what he's been campaigning on for well, any of this time, as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's been an eminent contributor to the field, and you know, everyone acknowledges that he's the founding father in many ways of neural networks. But um, it is a little bit surprising that he's he's getting involved in it now. And I think, you know, that that sort of shows how challenging it is to predict the consequences of scale, even though scale had delivered very objective and measurable performance improvements over the last three or four years. Why do you think he did this? The road to Damascus is a great metaphor, actually. Well, I, mean, I guess he thought the timelines were longer than they were, but I, I, I think, you know, um, he cares very deeply about the consequences of of his work and the and the field's work for everybody, and so I mean it makes sense that he would, just like the rest of us, want to engage more people in the debate. And th- this was a he has a platform and he hasn't used it at all before, and it's great that he's now got everybody paying attention. Certainly. Now, you also quit Google after it was described as a rocky tenure by the New York Times. The journal had reported there were complaints about you bullying staff. What was the reason you left there? Because after taking a leave of absence, you were elevated to a VP position at Google, and then you've since left. Can you talk about your own journey? No, I mean, you know, I, I spent 10 years at DeepMind, um, you know, delivering on our uh, applied AI division, and it was you know, an incredible time. We we did many, many launches, but towards the end of it, I got pretty knackered. I was pretty hard charging. I was tough to work for, um, you know, and I took that very seriously and I got some coaching. I took almost four or five months out and uh, had some time to reflect on how I was acting and how I was operating, what my management style was like and made a bunch of improvements. And uh, so then switched over to working at Google where I ended up actually working on Lambda for the best part of 2020 and 2021. Explain what Lambda is for those who don't know. Yeah, so um, Lambda was was the first application of the Transformer model at Google. It stood for um, Language Model for Dialogue Applications. Mm-hmm. And it was really ChatGPT before ChatGPT. I mean, we had a conversational, interactive very high quality, large language model working. And we were in the process of, when I was there, connecting it up to some parts of Google search to improve its factuality and grounding. And um, we were really just plugging away at trying to improve the quality of the experience and um, make it more and more safe. And that, that was what I was working on in 2021. And was your experience of being knackered, whatever that means, um, you can explain it to me uh, from a British point of view, but it, it, did that make you want to leave Google and start your own thing? Or it, was it working at a big environment? No. So the, the I, I moved to Google in 2019. Yes, you did. Yeah. And then uh, then I, I worked at Google for two years um, mm-hmm. and had an amazing time and worked with lots of uh, you know people in Google research, uh, mm-hmm. in the products team, policy team. That was when we were working on Lambda. And, um, you know, Google is a big organization and, you know, isn't always the fastest to move. And mm-hmm. um, so for me, you know, the potential of actually getting these models into production and building a small startup around this was was very attractive. And that's what I went off to do in last the beginning of last year. You and Reid Hoffman, who we've interviewed on this topic, have 
started Inflection AI. You raised $225 million, and you're reportedly in conversations to raise $675 million more. That's a lot of money. What do you hope to do with all that money? Do you think this is a better way to, because, you know, you're within Google, there's enormous power. If you're in Microsoft, any of these companies, you can certainly do a lot from these big companies, even if they're slower moving. How, what's the difference here? Look, I think there are going to be many, many different AIs, right? This is the beginning of a complete transformation in how we interact with computers. So, of course, Microsoft and Google will launch lots of different AIs, and they're leading the pack at the moment. But in the future, I expect every business, every brand, every person, every digital influencer, you know, every government, NGO, each of them will have their own AIs that are conversational, interactive, that dynamically generate new UI, new images, and that interact with you on whatever it is they're motivated by. So they might be trying to sell you something or teach you something or support you in your healthcare journey. Um, AIs are really going to be the new interface. And so that was really my hypothesis for starting a new company. What does a billion dollars give you to do this? What do you hope to do with the money? Well, we have a pretty small team at the moment. We we are only 35 people or so, um, but we train some of the largest language models in the world. Um, we have currently the largest GPU H100 cluster, which is in operation. So H100s are the new version of chips from NVIDIA mm-hmm. that are super performant and give you huge amounts of processing power. And so what we build is large language models that interact with real people. So Mm -hmm. we've tried to design an empathetic, um, a personal, a very conversational AI um, that I think in the future is going to become one of the main ways that you access other digital services in the world. You'll rely on your personal intelligence, your Pi, to, you call um, it personal AI. Yeah, I call it personal AI, just in the same way that you'd have a business AI or there would be a government AI or a brand AI or a music and entertainment AI. I think you as an individual are going to have a personal AI, and that AI is going to act on your behalf, right? It's going to find useful information for you by talking to other AIs and to other people, of course. Like an assistant, essentially. It's exactly like an assistant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And when you want to go buy something, it will negotiate with other AIs. If, like, say, you and I wanted to meet, maybe our two AIs would have a tete-a-tete beforehand, just like two chiefs of staff. Like, this is what Sankara's mind. This is what Mustafa's thinking about at the moment. You might be interested to talk to him about X, Y, Z, that kind of thing. Now, according to what what your company says, it has good EQ, it's kind, supportive, curious, humble, creative, and fun. Um, how, how do you then differentiate from, because this is what Bing, Claude, Hugging Chat, Character AI is trying to do, be your pal. Yeah, so ours is a much more informal, relaxed, conversational experience. It's very kind and polite. It helps you think through tricky decisions. It's there for you when you want to vent at the end of the day. It gives you feedback periodically. It might challenge you and help you think through, you know, something that you're working through. But it's also super smart, very knowledgeable. It's personalized to you. So remember what you've talked about previously across many sessions, across all the different platforms. So you can talk to it on WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook Messenger. There's an iOS app. No, no, you you would have to text it on one of those applications, right? And right. once you do, it will it will text you back on that platform, assuming that's your chosen platform. But it will be able to keep 
its memory of all the different things you've been talking about across those different sessions? So you said in the future, I think there will be an ever-present relationship you had with AI that helps you make sense of the world around you. Um, Obviously, whoever controls the AI that's in a deep, ever-present relationship with millions of people will wield tremendous power. Is that worrisome to you? Or why did you go this direction? Because you think this is the way it's going to be, that people will each have one of these. I just think that that if you think where things end up in five to 10 years, Mm -hmm. at the moment, every big tech company has a trillion dollar AI that is trying to sell you something, Mm -hmm. right? All the AIs today are trying to sell your product on Amazon, trying to find information and make you the product on Google or YouTube so that it can sell ads. All of these things are AIs that are acting at you or on you or towards you. And I think that what people will value is having an AI that can be adversarially, you know, engaged on your side, in Mm -hmm. your corner, on your team. And just as a good chief of staff or a good advisor, like you're going to have a lawyer, you're going to have a great doctor, you're going to have a good, uh, you know, person to schedule and organize and plan and prioritize your day. I think in five years' time, that's going to be available to everybody. You are selling this assistant, right? Let's talk about the business, your revenue model. Well, that's why this the revenue model is so important because in the past business model, you've basically been the product. Right. By giving you free things, you get a trade. Correct. And people don't like paying for stuff, right? And that's going to be a problem in this new era. My opinion, you're going to want to pay for your own AI, because that's the best way to align your interests, right? You know what you're getting. The AI is more accountable to you because you're the only person who's paying Mm -hmm. for it. And that's the business model that we're going to be pursuing. And I think it's the one that will end up being the most valuable because it will enable the AI to do really, really useful you know, things for you because it is so, you know, aligned with your interests and you'll come to trust it more. But how much will that cost for people? Look, I I think the problem is not everybody wants to pay for stuff. And some people aren't so worried about the privacy thing. Some people are like, I'm smart enough to be able to decide whether or not I want to buy this thing. It doesn't matter that there's a sales AI that's trying to sell me this thing. And so, you know, for those people who want to basically, you know, work off the freemium model, then we'll probably make that available to them as well. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to say loud and clear that I would prefer you to basically have more kind of control over it by paying for it. So I don't know what the number is going to be. But clearly, the subscription model is going to be a part of the landscape. We'll be back in a minute. Support for On with Kara Swisher comes from Babbel. Learning a new language doesn't just give you dozens of new ways to swear. Studies show that people who learn new languages develop better memories and get more comfortable solving difficult problems. In turn, confidence improves and perspectives open, allowing for more flexibility no matter what life brings to the table. If you're ready to make a new language part of your routine, Babbel can help. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with lessons created by real people for real conversations. Babbel doesn't rely on artificial intelligence to build its 10-minute lessons. 
Instead, they are handcrafted by more than 200 language experts focused on teaching phrases and vocabulary you'll actually need to communicate. I've used Babbel myself. I'm trying to learn Spanish since I spent four years trying to learn it in high school and then again in college. And I have to say, I'm doing a lot better with Babbel. I use it on the go when I'm traveling. It's super easy to do these 10-minute, five-minute lessons. It reminds me every day, and I do it. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash swisher. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash swisher, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash swisher. Rules and restrictions may apply. Support for this show comes from the Harvard Business Review. I made a career out of taking to task some of the tech industry's biggest players. And honestly, some of these guys, and they're all guys, really had no clue what they were doing, and they could probably have benefited from some of the resources available at Harvard Business Review. Harvard Business Review is a top source for smart management thinkers. Cultivated by some of the greatest minds in business, the Harvard Business Review is a trove of rigorous insight and best practices. It's more than just the flagship magazine, too. You can find the same level of expertise on hbr.org, and for just $10 a month, a subscription unlocks unlimited access to a variety of resources like hundreds of articles, podcasts, newsletters, case studies, and so much more. I use HBR all the time to look up all kinds of cases, and not just in tech, and also listen to their podcasts, I look at their newsletters, and I really, 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 most of all, like the articles, which have a different perspective that I might have to give me ideas. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code CARA right now to get 10% off your subscription. Again, to save 10% off your HBR subscription, go to hbr.org slash subscription and enter the promo code CARA. Let's move on to the competition. Let's do a lightning round where we run down some of your competitors and their products. Give one compliment and then tell me why Pi is better if it is. OpenAI and ChatGPT. I mean, I love that they got there first and they have a huge amount of scale and they focus on factuality. I think that uh, one strength of Pi over that is that it remembers your sessions and your history. So it's a little bit more personalized. It's a lot more informal and friendly and kind of more chatty. So rather than just regurgitating Wikipedia and being a question answering engine, it's, it really gets to know you over time. Okay, Google and Bard. I think Google's strength is that it's fast and it has access to fresh information. So because of obviously access to Google, the knowledge is very up to date and that's pretty useful. But um, on the flip side, Pi is going to have access to the freshest information in real time in two weeks when we release our new web search tool, which will basically allow you to say, find me the nearest restaurant, check what time it's open, mm -hmm. um, you know, what time is the cinema um, going to be open and what is it showing, et cetera, et cetera. So all kinds of fresh information will be available in Pi soon. Mm -hmm. And so Google presumably is not as friendly. Uh I always used to say Google never was good at social networks because they aren't social. Um, Anthropic and Claude. I mean, Anthropic's great. You know, they're a great team. They're very much focused on safety. And so they're kind of more on the research side, publishing research and stuff. So my understanding is that their product is really a way of enabling them to advance the research agenda, which is quite different to us. We're not in the research business and we're not publishing, even though 
We do do cutting edge model development, but we do it in production. DeepMind and Sparrow, which they may release this year. Um, strengths of DeepMind are that it really is a world-class research team. Mm -hmm. They've focused slightly on reinforcement learning in simulated environments. So they haven't been able to deploy and get into production and learn the challenges of doing inference in production at scale. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, the core thesis of DeepMind that you could learn everything in simulation without having to deploy meant that DeepMind was a little bit late to catch up with the LLM revolution. Mm -hmm. The 280 billion parameter Gopher model um, was quite a bit behind compared to other LLMs. Mm -hmm. But, you know, with the new Google DeepMind, the team's obviously going to catch up and they're a pretty outstanding research team. Meta says it plans to incorporate generative AI into a lot of its product, including WhatsApp and Messenger. What is their advantage? Well, I mean, they are going after the open source approach. The logic of that is give everybody access to the underlying weights and hope that the tidal wave of innovation that comes from, you know, every developer being able to kind of adapt and fork and experiment with their underlying source code is going to mean that all of the new advances um, get kind of created on the core Meta platform, in this case, Llama. Mm -hmm. And that will help Meta um, over the next few years because the rate of innovation will be faster than the rate of in innovation at like Google DeepMind or at OpenAI and Microsoft and so on. Remains to be seen whether that is the case. I think it's a, it's a huge bet. And um, it may be that the open source movement ends up just helping all of the other big companies just as much. So who knows? Right, which you could use. Yeah, I wonder if they'll change the name of their company now to something else. AI, maybe. LLM. <laughs> LLM. <laughs> LL Meta. <laughs> uh, so when we asked Sam Altman which competitor he could scare him the most, he said it was probably kids in a garage. Presumably that means he's not worried about well-funded startups like Inflection AI. Do you think about that? And who are you worried about? I mean... The last three months has been pretty incredible. It the has. rate of experimentation and innovation and, and so on. My sense is that people are going to be able to get to 85, 90% quality experiences in open source, but to really get the kind of 99th percentile in terms of quality, safety, and factuality, it takes in my opinion, the best researchers and world-class AI scientists who have access to very, very large amounts of compute. So whilst I think people can do great experiments and build great demos and move things forward, and there will be like many successful companies mm -hmm. that arise out of this little explosion of innovation, obviously my personal bet is that putting together a team of world-class AI scientists is, is going to be a, an advantage for us. And that's what we're trying to do. You obviously, in this case, though, needed some of computing power, as you said, in order to train the AI model. Inflection AI and OpenAI are both using Microsoft's Azure Cloud to run Pi and ChatGPT. Would it be possible to create Pi without partnering with a giant like this in that case because of the computing power? It's challenging. So, you know, we, we have a great relationship with Microsoft. They're a big partner of ours, and they've enabled us to get access to the cutting-edge infrastructure on, on Azure platform. So... I think, again, if you really want to run high-quality production workloads, then you're going to need to use one of the big cloud providers. No matter what. At the same time, I do think the trajectory, if you look out over five years, the trajectory is that these models are going to get smaller and more efficient. So if you look at GPT-3, for example, that came out in June 2020, so almost three years ago now, mm -hmm. that was a 175 billion parameter model. Today, there are nano versions of LLMs 
which are three billion parameters, which roughly achieve the same performance on all of the academic benchmarks that GBT three was successful on. That's a remarkable, you know, sixty x reduction. By the way, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say Reed Hoffman is on the board of Microsoft, which probably creates. A more smooth partnership, presumably. Yeah, although what I'm saying is that at this moment you need them where we are in the next like year or two years, but over three to five years, I do think that GPT level performance, GPT-4 level performance, which is where we're at at inflection, mm-hmm. will get 60 times, maybe 100 times smaller, just as the nano LLMs are now 60 times smaller than GPT-3 was three years ago. That has profound consequences because once that thing has been trained right and it's it's available and open source anyone you know who can run a 3 billion parameter model is going to be able to integrate that into their application right and use basically something which is as good as gpt4 like in terms of quality for whatever they want to do and they won't be dependent on the cloud service providers as much so it becomes a commodity in some fashion it becomes a commodity and it naturally proliferates actually and and this is one of my core arguments that we have to accept that in the history of invention, everything that is useful gets cheaper and easier to use. And so it spreads far and wide. And it it sounds simplistic to say that because it's almost like so obvious that that's the case, Mm -hmm. but it's easy to lose sight of what that means. If that applies in the case of LLMs, it means that in five years or 10 years, it will track the same exponential trajectory that we've seen over the last 60 years with the transistor which is that it's got radically cheaper, radically smaller, radically faster. More powerful. And therefore, it's going to proliferate far and wide. And that that's really the other side of the existential extinction mm-hmm. threat that everybody is talking about. So let's talk about safety and ethics. It's a broad field. There's lots to talk about. I'll try to hit a lot of topics very quickly. What's your approach to content moderation? Um, I think that we are going to have to take a more interventionist approach than we have done previously in the social media age. The idea that the platforms are just neutral purveyors of any content wasn't true and still isn't true, right? Ranking is a decision that the company makes, which prioritizes some content over others with respect to their policy, right? And the more that we can be transparent about what that policy is mm-hmm. and how it actually affects ranking, the better. I mean, I think in in the most recent years, five years or so, companies have been more transparent about that policy. But now we need to tie that to the actual ranking of the algorithm itself. In the case of the training of LLMs, we have a behavior policy which governs what the AI can and can't say, right? You can see that Pi is... Um, has a very particular style. It mm-hmm. tries to be even-handed. It tries to be really respectful. You know, it tries not to be too biased, but there are some topics that are off limits, right? Let me give an example. When we asked Pi if it was woke, it conceded that some people think it might be so because it gave responses that are, quote, supportive of LGBTQ plus rights, immigration reform, and racial justice. It restricted access. When we asked about groomers in schools. I think that's great, but um, does that mean you can't be personal AI to say people who don't like gay and lesbian people or or think they're groomers, et cetera, because you do get immediately enmeshed in the real world. They're not going to be my customers. That's the bottom line. I mean, I have to accept that. I'm not trying to build a platform and an experience that, you know, 
every single one of the 300 plus million Americans likes or, you know, let alone everybody in the world. There's going to be many, many different AIs, whether we like it or not. There'll be a truth GPT that Elon builds that maybe has a different set of values and we'll have to contend with that. And so the meta moderation challenge is actually going to be how do these interacting AIs communicate with one another in a respectful way, right? Uh, That's the challenge. Probably just as badly as people, you know. A truth AI will be a, a lot of boob jokes and meme memes, stupid memes will be Elon's truth AI. Anyway, but should AI-generated content be covered by Section 230? It isn't now, from what I understand from regulators. Obviously, that, that covered a lot of sins for the current internet industry, as you and I both know. I think if an AI has to disclose that it's an AI, and take responsibility for what it says, then that's going to be a very different regime, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's a different regulatory regime altogether. Yeah, you can be sued. It's not the same as just making available access to everybody on the internet or connecting everybody, right? It needs a different theoretical framework. Um, AI might become a pathway for misinformation, as you know. This has been talked a lot. One of them is called hallucination. Sometimes large language models just fabricate false information out of thin air. When we asked Pi about hallucinations, first it said it didn't know what AI hallucinations were. When we explained, it assured us it didn't hallucinate. When pressed, it clarified it wasn't immune to hallucinations, but said it didn't do it intentionally and called them confabulations, which is a tremendous word, by the way. That's true. Uh, Finally, when we asked how long it would take to reach 95% accuracy, Pi said, I would estimate it will take at least 10 to 20 years to achieve 95% accuracy or better at generating truthful and accurate responses. (laughs) This is due to the complexity of AI confabulations problem and the limitations of current algorithms. Uh, how do you like that answer? Oh, that's a pretty good answer. I'm proud okay. of Pi. Okay. All right. That's All right. not bad. I mean, t- I don't agree with 10 to 20 years Pi, mm. but in general, referring to them as confabulations, which is after the kind of patients that have been mm-hmm. investigated in neuroscience where people make things up based on context. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's that's that's a completely reasonable analogy to draw. And that's a it's a pretty... Pretty decent explanation. So you think it's quicker, that the, the consensus I think it'd field. be much quicker. Right. I've actually said, uh, I think I've said publicly that I think that- Yeah, you did. You know, we, we will largely eliminate hallucinations um, in the next few years. You said by June years. 2025, you tweeted to, this. To, yeah, exactly. Some people think they're unsolvable. You, you're aware of that. Well, I, I my, my take is the, the trajectory of progress between GPT-2, 3, and 4. Mm-hmm has been staggering. What this shows is that these models are eminently controllable. Actually, the larger they get, the more prone they are to being directed in controlled and constrained ways. That doesn't eliminate the risks and it doesn't make the problems go away because some people will use those things to precisely design bad AIs that do bad things. But we are now dealing with a much more malleable tool which can be crafted into very particular behaviors. And that's good news for those who want to use it to do useful things that help us, you know, be smarter and learn more and be more productive and so on. One of the, just a few more questions. One of the biggest issues uh, people worry about is job losses, obviously. You've said that governments have to help people who lose their jobs, maybe with universal basic income. It's a massive social change. So do you support, for example, higher taxes on the wealthy in order to pay for programs that create higher levels of unemployment? Or as many people like to say, there'll be more in different jobs. That was something Mark Andreessen said. Many people say that. Yes, I absolutely do support more taxes on the wealthy, on corporations and wherever there are large 
tranches of capital which are not being used, whether that's in land or property or stocks, we should turn over these assets and make their value available to large swathes of the population so that they can be supported through this transition. The problem with the narrative here is that, again, everybody is right depending on the timeline, right? So Mark Andreessen is right if you look out over 10 or 20 years, right? It's probably true that we're going to create new jobs, maybe even net new jobs, in aggregate new jobs that we can't yet predict. We didn't know that there were going to be prompt engineers or AI teachers. Mm -hmm. That's probably true. We're going to create all these new disciplines, and that's great. But when you look out over 20 years or 30 years, it's pretty clear that AIs are climbing the ladder of human cognitive abilities, right? They're already superhuman at language translation. They're already superhuman at face recognition. So that's only going to continue. And personally, I think that's a great thing because if they can be constrained and contained, and if we can harness the benefits, then this will be the greatest explosion of productivity in the history of our species. And we will use it to fight our our climate crisis. You mean we're using it to fight the climate crisis, but we're not busy doing stupid things. I think that's essentially what you're saying. Like, Wrote. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying that we will use it to address our big social challenges that we face from transport and healthcare to f- sustainable food to water desalination to renewable energies to carbon capture or storage. AI is going to help us make progress on all these problems over the next 20 and 30 years. And that's going to be amazing. Everyone is going to benefit massively from that explosion of productivity. At the same time, it's going to mean that many people are not going to be able to compete in the labor market and their skills just won't be sufficiently valuable in 20 to 30 years. Right. And we have to face that. I mean, we, I've been saying that since 2012, right? We, we, we have to collectively embrace that reality and not call that doomerism or pessimism. We have to confront that reality like in a responsible way and ask, what is it going to take to carry people through that transition and be respectful of their livelihoods? And we should start with progressive taxation, right? We don't have to jump to UBI because that's easily dismissed and it's hard to see how that gets funded in this level of productivity output. But we can certainly start with massive taxes on the wealthy and massive subsidies for those who aren't able to contribute their skills. And those should be focused around education and retraining and community welfare and supporting people who are already adding value to society, but don't necessarily get paid for it, like in the way that we care for our elderly and so on, where that we care for people who have disabilities. So we find valuable but is not paid for, in other words. Yeah. The European Parliament recently introduced the AI Act, a set of broad regulations that include transparency and safety requirements. What's your stance on that bill? I'm quite supportive. I mean, I think that, you know, it's rough around the edges and overreaches in a bunch of places, but in general, it's headed in the right direction. We clearly want a requirement for there to be more transparency over the data that's been used, over the way that the algorithm has been trained, over the way that the ranking function has been developed. You know, as an AI engineer with that hat on, I feel irritated by it because it's really hard. (laughs) Yeah. It's a hard thing to do. But as somebody who cares deeply about the future of humanity, I realize it's totally the right thing to do. And if there was just a level playing field and a requirement, then we would all just figure out how to solve that problem, right? Okay. And so likewise with explainability, you know, we, we want to have good, reliable explanations for why an AI has 
made either some decision or produced some generation. Mm-hmm. And I think we can also make progress on that, even though it's super hard. Just for people who don't know, Sam Altman said he might pull back ChatGPT from Europe if it passed, but he walked that back. But there's clearly some pushback. Europe tends to overreach. U.S. doesn't reach at all. But Antonio Guterres, the U.N. General Secretary, says he likes the idea of an international watchdog agency, kind of like the International Atomic Energy Agency. Would you like to see that? I think everyone I talk to thinks a global agency is necessary. Particular. Yeah. I definitely think that there has to be somebody with audit powers that can scrutinize the scale of the models that we're building above some threshold and report on the kind of safety environment that they're operating in. So we definitely can't have it, you know, suddenly like like grow like the number of labs like they have with BSL-4 labs that are, you know, pretty leaky and where there's lots of accidents and stuff mm-hmm. like that. The more we can learn from those kinds of experiences, the better. Okay, last question. I spoke to Tristan Harris a few weeks ago. He thinks we're at the beginning of an AI arms race that will have catastrophic societal consequences. Uh, putting aside the extinction worries, if we don't get regulation, what is your biggest worry? Obviously, Tristan is more worried than yourself. But when you think about it, do you think our regulators are up to the task of doing something about it? They haven't seemed to be able to, sometimes impacted by the money that the Googles of the world spend, the Microsofts of the world spend. I think that one of the most valuable contributions a lot of senators and congressmen and women could make would be to step down if they don't really understand or care about or are deeply engaged in technology. I mean, we have many, many, you know, political representatives now that are in their 70s and 80s that didn't grow up with technology. And in many ways, whilst I fully respect their, you know, contributions they've made in the past, it's unlikely that they're going to be able to, you know, upskill themselves and, you know, have a finger Hmm. on the pulse here. So I think we should make way for a new generation of regulators and give them the freedom and power to operate and move quickly. We also have to have more experimentation and more risk-taking in regulation, and we need to be more forgiving. We need to be more forgiving both, both of the companies and of the regulators for getting it wrong. Because if we continue with this kind of adversarial, polarized battle, then, you know, people will shrink into their corners and not want to be proactive and and engage. And so far, in the last couple of years, I think that the AI companies have been quite forthright in calling for proactive regulation. We've certainly at DeepMind been saying this for a long time, and that's great. And we should try to keep building that, you know, trusting relationship whilst acknowledging that we're still inviting scrutiny on ourselves. All right, Mustafa, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Sure. I love that he has called for the gerontocracy to step down. Yes, old people go away. Make room for the young Mm -hmm. or the knowledgeable. It's not actually about ageism. It's about proximity to the trend. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's right. He said a lot of yeah. spicy things. I liked it. I liked him calling Mark Andreessen a VC troll. I think the ultimate VC troll. The ultimate, and he certainly is. Is that fair? Oh, really? Yes. Even 100%. more? I would have thought you would have named someone else, Kara. VC troll. David Sachs. Oh, he's, is he a VC, really? Okay, sure. <laughs> Whatever. Um, You're no, the ultimate. No, because he's not good at it, actually. Mark is much better at it um, in terms of quality of trolliness. Oh, um, yeah. I think that you're attributing ultimate as stuck to VC and not ultimate as stuck to troll. Look, they're all trolls, but Mark is the king troll. I thought that was great. I think mm-hmm. him talking about 
Elon was interesting. Um, I think him talking about a bunch of things. He was yeah. quite about like if they if he, they don't like the way he runs his his pie, they don't have to use it. If he doesn't like it being nice to gay people, well, don't use my get, go to Elon's Truth AI. I love that Truth AI. Also, he was very circumspect and respectful of one person, though Jeffrey Hinton. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was. I think he was kind of saying he doesn't really he didn't wasn't really paying attention to what was going on if he thought this was a surprise. Yeah. Or he was saying that whatever it was, was inexplicable. I love the road to Damascus, which yeah. if people don't know, it's, an, it's New Testament, right? Yes. It's Paul. Paul, the apostle, yeah. gets suddenly converted to love Jesus yes. after having persecuted Christians. Yes. The sudden and kind of transformational mm-hmm. change in, in somebody. He which said he hadn't spoken had. up and then suddenly he did. He never mm-hmm. heard him have a problem with it and then he had a problem with it. But, you know, people yeah. keep things to themselves. I love the point he made, which is that everybody is right. It just depends on the timeline. Yes. That is correct that in a lot like, of ways. Such a smart way to think about it, actually, because it, it is about nuance and it's about timeline. Mm-hmm. And he also made another really interesting point about timeline, which is that we think this has been really sudden with ChatGPT, but it had been incremental for so long. Yeah. And I had forgotten that. We spoke before the interview about Clara AI, but mm-hmm. I had forgotten that experience from 20. 20- Whatever, yeah, no, they've been working on it. You know, years yeah. before there was an iPhone, there were other things that were like an iPhone. Mm-hmm. And then when iPhone came, it was like, oh, my God. But if you had been a student of any history, it would have been like, it's like that. It's like that. General magic, right? Yes, that's correct. What was one of the most mm-hmm. important one, actually. Yeah. That was a very early version of the iPhone. And mm-hmm. it was by people who would later be involved in the iPod and Android and things like that. And just like these vision glasses, they, this has been around. Mm-hmm. And so now they're starting to reach or autonomous or anything else. So I think a lot of people who work in AI were expecting this. Mm-hmm. And it's not just, you know, neural networks, as he noted, has been around for 40 years, the concepts yes. around them. He's envisioning a world where everybody has a personal AI, kind of like a dupe, a person. I think he's right, 100% right. Do you think that startups are like him or big companies will be the ultimate startups. winners here? The startups will come up with all the really interesting applications. You'll have mm-hmm. an AI for everything you do. Like, you, you could have a shopping AI, you could have, you know, or you'd interact mm-hmm. with a shop. You probably have a personal AI, and then there'll be all kinds of companies that have AIs that will interact yeah. with the other AIs. Why bother with humans? Humans are terrible. <laughs> Thanks, Kara. Yeah. And part of the reason why startups will win is because they're able to deploy this stuff. I mean, that, yeah. he, he didn't say it, but he almost said it with Google, this idea that the technology was kind of it moves so slowly. It does. But there'll be big companies like the Googles and Microsofts, but then there'll be all kinds of startups that will do mm-hmm. different things and then take uh, hegemony over the bigger companies. Yeah. I mean, like, there was lots of stuff before Google, and then mm-hmm. there was Google. There was a lot of stuff before Microsoft, but then yeah. there was Microsoft. And so uh, you forget a lot of these companies started as small ones. You just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And that's the whole Except I know everyone's going to have one. We don't know what's going to happen, except you know what's going to happen. Well, I know you're going to have a personal AI assistant, yeah. whether you like it or not. And what? I think you'll like it. Yeah, because you basically can double yourself. Well, it's, it reminds me a little bit of when I was arguing with people about the cell phone, and mm-hmm. I had one, and everyone was like, oh, I'm not going to use that. I like my telephone by the wall. And I'm like, what? Okay, yeah. People, what? what? Many years, I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. You go back and look at it saying you are not going to have be at the office tethered to a phone, and it was called Cutting the Cord, and mm. I got so much flack for it. When you were at Georgetown, didn't you cover the end of the payphone? Yes, I did, the end of the payphone. It's going away. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well, this has been a great show. Thank you, Kara AI, for hanging out with no me. No problem. Kara AI is a lot nicer than regular Kara. Oh, all right. Well, then sleep. I guess we know it was actually Kara. Just like real Kara, she doesn't sleep. <laughs> Can you read us out, please? Yes. Today's show is produced by Naeem Araza, Blakeney Schick, Christian Castro-Rossell, and Megan Burney. Special thanks to Mary Mathis. 
Rick Kwan engineered this episode. Our theme music is by Trackademics. If you're already following the show, Pi will not rise up like the Terminator and destroy us. If not, we're doomed and it's your fault. Go wherever you listen to podcasts, search for On with Kara Swisher and hit follow. Thanks for listening to On with Kara Swisher from New York Magazine, the Vox Media Podcast Network and us. We'll be back on Monday with more. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.